with the time we have and the subject, I want to keep introductions short. I was asked to talk on New Age theology. That felt like somewhat of an explosive subject to talk about. But I want to share my heart with you. I know most, if not all of you, I'm good friends with many of you. And a lot of our conversations have centered around this. But I just want to be sure you know, starting out, my love that I have for you. No matter how you feel about the subject that I'm going to talk about, it's not my intention to upset anyone or to cause arguments. It's not my intention to give weaponry to fight your brother. My heart in sharing this message is I want to cause us to think, to think and to inspire us to read God's Word regularly. Not because we know a good Christian should, but because it's our bread and our water. The Bible reveals the heart of the Father. It's a living word. It's living in a way that a sword is alive in the hands of a mighty warrior. A warrior isn't worth much without his weapon. But to be a soldier, to have a soldier's perspective, we need to have the spirit of the one who sent us. Without God's spirit, you're not a soldier. When a civilian has a weapon and doesn't know how to use it, it destroys rather than protects. I want to be able to discern truth from falsehood. For that, I need a soldier's spirit, and I need this sword. My heart is that we can be open to discussing this subject where perhaps many of us feel differently or don't know what to think. New Age theology, I'll explain more what, I, what I'm specifically going to be talking about because that can cover a wide range of subjects. But I want us to be able to discuss this with wisdom, wisdom that is first pure and then gentle easy to be entreated, wisdom that comes from above. I want us to have knowledge that comes from being familiar with God's Word, and humility that comes from being led of the Spirit. And again, I want to point out that New Age theology can mean different things to different people. But there is some teaching that has had a big impact in our area and in this church. Most of us, I would say, are aware that much of this teaching comes from a church in California, Redding, California, called Bethel Church. I think it's somewhat ironic that our church has the same name. I began studying this theology some years ago I don't consider myself to be a scholar, but I started in really the only way that I knew how. I wanted answers. And if I have time in the second session, I may share some of my testimony. But I well remember after my rebirth, I remember the struggle with when am I going to be able to speak in tongues? When am I going to be able to have enough faith to do a miracle? I remember that time. 
But I started by taking the foundational scriptures that you hear quoted all the time when you watch videos online or when you read uh, content, read uh, writing, things that they wrote. I took the scriptures and I attempted to harmonize them with other scriptures. And I began realizing that when I went to harmonize their interpretation with other scriptures, the scriptures couldn't be harmonized. Many of their methods, you could say all of their methods, come from their interpretation. And many are actually, I found to be in direct contradiction to scripture. And I've come to consider this teaching to be false. And so wherever you find yourself on that this morning, I hope that you can hear my heart. And I'm open to, open to discussing this with any one of you. And my hope is, my heart is, that I would share the things that I say here this morning, I would say to any group of people, to any one. I just want to share my heart with you. And it's to give us a passion. My heart is to give us a passion for God's Word. And my hope is that we can truly understand the greatness of our salvation. That's something I think that our people, not just our people, but I have experience with our people, with the Mennonite beachy culture. Many of us, many of us have lost the greatness of our salvation. I don't want to come here and say that we are right and they are wrong. We just need to dig in our heels and hold on to what we've been taught, remain fixed and frozen in our beliefs. We have so much value in our heritage, and I want you to hear that. I believe. That's why me and my family are still Mennonite. There's, there's so much value that we have. It's not worth it to lose that. And I think all of you would agree with me on that. But I think a lot of you would agree with me as well that many of us in our Mennonite culture are struggling. We're a broken people. We have so much value in the things that we've been taught. But do we really understand what it means that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul said this, he said, This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Think of this. This is what Paul is writing, so that no one would beguile us with enticing words. You have died with Christ. And He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules of the world come from human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Hear my heart on this. No system, no structure, no standard can keep us from being carried away with deceptive teaching. Nothing that we can come up with can conquer our sinful desires. And it doesn't take much time in working with people and talking to others that work with people, there's much hidden sin in our churches today. And this bears true that whenever I, as an individual, decide to rely on something that isn't bad, having structure, having guidelines, having a way that we do things isn't bad. But if I begin to let the system run, and I just kind of sit back and watch as a father, and as a Christian, in my life there will be consequences to that. There's only one thing that can conquer 
my sinful nature and can renew my mind to help me spot deception. In many ways, our churches, I believe, tend to produce weak Christians because the tendency is there to rely too heavily on the systems, too heavily on the systems and structure. And it's easy to pattern our lives after a list of standards and what is generally expected by the greater group. Rather than developing disciplines and good habits that lead to desire, that lead to devotion, that lead to craving to daily feast on the Word of God. Only by being led of the Spirit, only by taking the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Only then can we hope to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Only then can we know the truth that sets us free. We don't have to be deceived. This is something I want to be sure to tell you. You can understand Scripture for yourself. I've talked to many people over the years that for some reason or another feel that they have to allow everyone else, people that they maybe look up to, maybe it's leadership in their church, or maybe it's someone, uh, someone else that they look up to, whatever they say goes in their life. If they say it's right, it's right. If they say it's wrong, it's wrong. We can learn from each other, certainly, but God has given you a spirit, and He's given you the sword. You can know for yourself the good things of God. And when you know them for yourself, that's when they get planted in your heart and really make a difference. I want to tell you this so you know that we're on the same level here. Jesus Christ is in heaven interceding for you as well as for me. So this New Age teaching, as we refer to it, it's really an old teaching. It's not new. It's probably been around ever since the early church in some form or another. The prosperity gospel, it would be much in line with the prosperity gospel. It might also be referred to as the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR. It's been around for a long time, but it gets repacked and reintroduced now and then. And there's so many different things that we could talk about, different directions we can go. But again, my heart is to go to the foundation that the house is built on. And compare it with the foundation we're supposed to build through God's Word. We only have two sessions, and I'm not going to get into everything that is taught in the NAR or in the Prosperity Gospel or coming directly from, from Bethel Church, which many would consider kind of the, the current face of the Prosperity Gospel movement, Word of Faith movement. My heart is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. I want to take Scriptures that are commonly used and compare them with other Scriptures and let those Scriptures do the interpreting. So it's not me. But I want to read some things that I read online about Bethel Church. And I was very hesitant to use names. But as I began studying I thought, well, it's hard for me to get around it. To be able to maybe do justice to what we're talking about. When I'm talking about Bethel Church and I talk about their lead pastor, Bill Johnson, I'm not making any judgment call on his salvation or on anyone there. But I think we're responsible to look at teaching and hold it up to the Word of God. Many of Paul's letters that he wrote to churches were addressing false teaching. I like what Paul did though. He always seems he started out with the hope of the Gospel. Then he addressed false teaching, but then he came back around to the hope of the Gospel. I hope to do that today. So we want to talk about what's false. I'd love to talk more about what's true. Bethel Church focuses on miracles and healing. Bethel teaches that all miracles described in the Bible can be performed by believers today and happen regularly including faith healing of everything from curing cancer to regrowing limbs, raising the dead, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, and prophecy. And this is again, I'm still reading this from, from an excerpt that I got online. This often appeals to young people who are searching for meaning and also looking for adventure and excitement. These kinds of churches appeal to them in a way that traditional congregations just can't. 
They are merely trying to learn, they're not merely trying to learn how to know God or live a godly life or share their faith with other people. They really believe they're actually participating in a cosmic spiritual battle to transform the world. They're involved in this battle for whole cities and nations. And when you look at, uh, at some of the uh, teaching coming out of Bethel, that this is true. And then you have the appeal of direct access to God, getting direct downloads from God. This is what they would teach. God is going to talk to me and tell me what to do. Or my leader is getting direct downloads. For many people, that's more exciting than a 45-minute sermon examining the Greek terms for Paul, from Paul's writings. Uh, hopefully, that's not going to be the case today. But this is what I think. I think this appeals to many people from our culture in that they find themselves searching for purpose and wanting more from their Christian experience. One reason I think this teaching is so appealing is that at face value it seems biblically based because they use biblical terms. They talk about Christ. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in being baptized. They talk about repentance. The difference is in the definition of these terms. What they teach about Christ is different than what the Bible teaches about Christ. What they teach about the Trinity is different than what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. They commonly teach that if you're struggling in an area of your life, then you are disconnected with one part of the Trinity. And they often walk you through uh, something called sozo. You've been sozoed. It's a, it's a, that's a Greek term. And uh, without going into all the detail, it would be they walk you through kind of a, they have like a spirit guide that, that leads you through areas of your childhood. And you find out, you know, where you got disconnected with, with a certain person in your life. And then they kind of translate that into saying, well, you were disconnected from either Christ or you were disconnected from God or you were disconnected from the Holy Spirit. And then they work you through a series of steps to reconnect you to the one you were disconnected with. And that's, that's commonly taught in their School of Supernatural Ministry. I just want to read this, and I just want to move through it, and I want to spend a lot of time on it. When Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, and this is about the Trinity, saying, this is showing that the Trinity is three in one. We can't separate the Trinity. When Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, in John 14, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say then, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do, not, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. And the Scriptures indeed teach in many places that you cannot have one part of the Trinity but not the others. That you can have one part of the Trinity but not the others. Three and one. From what I've seen, they don't baptize on confession of faith. They baptize for whatever your reason may be. They normally ask you two questions. What's your name? Why do you want to be baptized? And the, the, uh, the baptisms that I've seen, the, the answer is very greatly anywhere from wanting to define joy and peace to I love Jesus to I felt called to lead the animal kingdom and I need God's help. There they teach you to prophesy, and if it doesn't come true, that's okay. You're practicing. You learn how to prophesy. They often speak in tongues. Uh, I have yet to hear anyone interpret for them. A few years ago, one of the worship team, their child unexpectedly passed away. You may have heard about this. They spent, I think, the better part of a week trying to raise her from the dead without success. In, in those camps there's often no such thing as bad, bad publicity. When something, when there's a failure they'll, they may at least say, well look, at, uh, look at, at all the people that came together and prayed together and worshiped the Lord together. Good things happened through this. How can, how can you say it was bad? When in reality it was a failure in what they were trying to do. So what conclusions can you draw from that? It's consistent for them to take biblical terms and fit them into their own ideas and ways of doing things. They really don't have a biblical basis. 
So Bill Johnson, one of the things he says often is that Jesus Christ is perfect theology. That sounds right, but again, what does he mean by that? This is what he says about Christ. Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, but not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I'm responsible to pursue his lifestyle. Those are the words of Bill Johnson. When Heaven Invades Earth, that's an excerpt from that book that he wrote. And this book they're required to read as part of their School of Supernatural Ministry if you're a student there. In truth, what Scripture would teach is that Jesus was a man, but He was also God. And we'll look into that a little bit later. He never emptied Himself of being God. And I want to get very practical here. And if we're going to be talking about this, I'd love to just give some practical tools, even especially to our young people, uh, just some things to think about. You know, with often you have a conversation with a friend, and, you, and your friend is saying things, and, and you're like, you don't have any tools to combat it. That's where I want to encourage you to read your Bible, not as an instruction manual, but you know the heart of God in reading your Bible. It gives the Spirit within you His sword. And you can fight with it. It gives you good perspective, right perspective. But I want to share some verses that can help keep us grounded in truth. Just simple stories that we know, but think about what actually took place in Mark 2, 5-7, when Jesus uh, was teaching and there was friends that brought a man sick of palsy and, and let him down through the roof. You remember that story. And I love Jesus' response. And this is something that reveals that He was God. He was not doing His mighty works just as a man in right relationship with God, because it doesn't matter how close in relationship you are with God, or how full of the Spirit you are, you can only forgive sins if you're God. And we see this happening here. When Jesus saw their faith, He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. The Pharisees, who were determined that He was a man, and only a man, they accused him of blasphemy and said, Who can forgive sins but God only? Well, they were right. Only God can forgive sins. They were determined to keep him a man, but here he proved that he was indeed God. Listen to the words of John the Baptist when he talked about, when he talked about God. I hate to ask, but I think these allergies are kind of getting to me. Could somebody bring some water? That would be great. John 3, 30-35. I want to read this. And this is the words of John the Baptist talking about Jesus. And this is, uh, I thought of this and I wanted to share this verse because it is true that Jesus had the Holy Spirit. We find that He got the Spirit just before He went into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. But this is what John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. That's not just a man. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Proving again that He was God. Thank you so much, man. And then he says this about Him, He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto Him. Isn't that interesting? Whenever Jesus spoke, He spoke from the Father, every time. Well, that's not the case with us. We want it to be that way. But if it's significant about Christ that the Spirit was not given to Him by measure, is it fair to say that we are only given a measure of the Spirit? That's why it's so important for us to fellowship with each other. Fellow believers, together were the body of Christ, not singular, together. We find that in 1 Corinthians. Paul talks a lot about that. So, those are two things. The Spirit was not given by measure unto Him. 
that makes him more than just a man in right relationship with God. And also he forgave sins numerous times, proving that he was God, because only God can forgive sins. Clearly he was still God even when he was in the flesh. And I would love to take the time and explain why it was so important that he was still God. Um, but if I have time in the second session, maybe I will. Something I would like to do in the second session is maybe have some question and answer. Uh, so if, if you have anything that's on your mind you'd like to talk about, I'm not, I, I don't know if I'm going to have a prepared answer or not, but we can talk about it. I can give you my take on it. Uh, we can have some discussion. I, just, I want it to be maybe a little bit more informal. And if I have some time, I might share a little bit of my testimony as well. But uh, so be thinking if you have some questions you would like to ask, we can talk about it. So the claim, and there's other scriptures we could use, but we want to move on. The claim that Christ was a man in right relationship with God is false scripturally. There's, it's, we're unable to harmonize that statement with other scriptures. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. This is another verse that is quoted often by Bill Johnson. And it's a beautiful verse. But he teaches in often that this is our assignment as people. Here is something that he would have said, People often come to me and ask me to pray for them that they would discover God's will for their life. I already know God's will for their life. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, cleanse lepers. And that's, I ended the quote there, but it goes on basically re reinforcing that thought. But the truth of the matter is, God's will is for us to, and we find this, uh, especially after Jesus fed the 5,000, we find this in John chapter 6, I believe it is. God's will is for us to believe in Christ. And I'm going to go on a very deep and very quick explanation of the gospel here. God's will is for us to believe in Christ for forgiveness of our sins, so that we can live with His Holy Spirit, so that we can have a new mind, so that we can be restored in right relationship with God. And as we live, we live bearing His fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy. As we confidently expect Him to work all things for our good. I suppose many of you recognize quite a few different references referenced there. But this is the will of God that we believe on Him who He sent. So I want to talk about this just a little bit to give us some clarity about what was Jesus talking about when He told the disciples, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Something to keep in mind is that He gave them this power to go out and spread His message. But what's interesting, and I think we'll see this a little bit later, is that when He died and rose from the dead just before He ascended, He instructed the disciples to wait to begin their ministry until they were endowed with power from on high. It's interesting that they were still not equipped to work in the kingdom, even though they had the power to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. So here's the setting. When Jesus sent out the disciples, there were 12 disciples, and He gave them this power. He even gave this power to Judas, the betrayer. I find that interesting. But the 12 Jesus sent forth, and this is what He commanded them saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they were to be very focused in who they actually took this message to, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. These were signs of the coming kingdom. 
and they were prophesied. Verse 9, I've never heard this verse mentioned in all of Bethel theology, but he also told them, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. That you don't hear mentioned. So this is clearly not an assignment for all Christians for all time. There were twelve apostles, one for each tribe of Israel, and they were sent out to the Jews, their own people, with a clear purpose. And there's much more we can, we can say on that. But again, it was only a temporary power given to them. I'll just close that for now. So just before Jesus ascended, I'll read these verses I mentioned earlier. He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ. This is in Luke 24. 46 to 49. It behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. This is talking to the disciples. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endowed with power from on high. And again, the disciples were not yet ready to preach repentance and remission of sins among all nations, even though they could heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out devils. So another quote Bill Johnson often says is, the supernatural should be natural for the Christian. Bethel Church teaches today that people are still receiving direct words from God, and that the offices of apostle and prophet have been restored to the church. I want to make something clear going forward is that I don't see anything in Scripture today that, that Christ no longer, that God no longer heals or that He no longer can perform a miracle. There's nothing that I can find that would imply that. I believe that God can choose to do what He wants whenever He wants. He is an almighty and a sovereign God. However, I do not believe that there are modern day apostles and prophets. The Old Testament was written and established as a result of God revealing His Word through the prophets. The New Testament has been a result of the words of Christ being brought to remembrance to the faithful apostles. Let's keep in mind that the Scriptures were a result of the apostles and prophets. Since we have the complete canon of Scripture, there's no more need for apostles and prophets that are able to do miraculous deeds and foretell future events. With God's written Word, there's no longer a need to work through apostles and prophets. Whenever someone claims to be an apostle, you can be sure there will be a cult-like following and lots of damage that comes from someone claiming to be something he's not. In fact, in Matthew 7, and I'd like we can turn to that, Matthew chapter 7. I'd like to read some verses there in Matthew 7 toward the end of the chapter. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or toward the latter part of it anyway. And I find it very interesting. Jesus had just finished and we know in Matthew 5 is the Beatitudes, and then you have Matthew 6 and Matthew 7, just a beautiful sermon that he preached. It was amazing, and, and people were astonished at the things that he said. But in verse 15 he says, Be aware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. He already said here, Beware, ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. And then he goes into the next section here and teaches about the house that's built on the rock and the house that's built on the sand. But listen, very interesting. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is his will? That you believe in the one that he sent. Many will say to me in that day, 
Lord, Lord. Now listen, when, you, when I read this, think of the teaching coming from Bethel Church and in the Prosperity Gospel in general and from the NAR. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name, and in Thy name have cast out devils, and in Thy name done many wonderful works? And that word wonderful is the same word that's used to describe Jesus' mighty works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me that work, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And then verse 24, therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine, what were his sayings? His sayings were Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. I think that's what he was referring to here. Whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. And I think it would be safe to say, but rather prophesies in my name, and casts out devils in my name, and, and claims many wonderful works. I should say claims these things. When the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, it fell, and great was the fall of it for it was built on sand. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished. Maybe you find yourself astonished this morning. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. Fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets. If we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and we are built upon the foundation. What is the foundation? Christ, the Word, and the written Word. You can't separate them. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We often talk about repentance and forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is not an end in itself. It, it purifies your heart so that God's Spirit can dwell in it. It's with God's Spirit that we can have a right relationship with God, and it's through His Spirit that we're called children of God. That's of all importance to realize that. We have the sword but it's not our sword, it's the sword of the Spirit we find in Ephesians 6. Today we don't have to be taught by the authority of an apostle or a prophet. Rather we can be taught through reading God's Word. And God's Word is a result of the apostles and prophets. Isn't that beautiful? Hebrews 4 verse 12, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That's why God's Word is a living Word, because when we put it in our hearts, it's held by the Spirit. First Peter chapter 1, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, a love that is not hypocritical. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Many people claim to have been born again, but it was because of corruptible seed. We are born of incorruptible seed if our faith is in Christ Jesus through the Word of God. And it says it here, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And then he says, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Today we try the spirits by holding their message to the word of God. 
And again, in Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word is a miracle in itself. How it came about. John 14, verse 26, Jesus talking to the disciples just before He ascended. He talked about the Comforter. He said, The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. In fact, He told them, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. But you see, when the day of Pentecost came, and God's Spirit was poured out, the reason that people thought that they were drunk was because, I think, they were flooded with understanding. They were flooded by realization of what this was all about. Jesus told Peter, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. It's a beautiful thing that happened. I hope it can be firmly established in our minds that God's Word is the foundation that we test spirits and teaching. God promised that signs would follow the disciples to confirm this Word as they took the Gospel to all people. That's how the Scriptures were born. As signs and wonders were given to confirm the Word of the Apostles, this Word was divinely inspired and was documented and written down. And what's interesting, I might need to have a Kleenex of some kind, if someone could run one up to me. So, what is, what is interesting is that there's people that say, well, the Bible has been watered down, it's been translated in different ways, thank you. It's no longer what it once was. I would say the opposite is true, because with time, there's been more and more archaeological digs that are going on constantly, and more and more documents are being found, fragments that they're finding and piecing together, and the Word of God is becoming more and more documented, and more and more proven that it's true. Everything keeps lining up with, with each other. And there's more evidence now than ever before on the authenticity of God's Word. Whenever someone uses signs and wonders as evidence of the Spirit, this is false teaching. I've likened it this way, that signs and wonders were just that. They were signs pointing somewhere. But the tendency, and it's probably always been a tendency for us humans, is to uh, gather around the sign and think that that's actually what it is. And I've likened it already to a big McDonald's sign that says billions and billions served and, and people uh, are on, you know, traveling, someone's traveling and they see this big sign that says McDonald's and they're like, we are so hungry. And right there says McDonald's and they, they gather around the sign and they tell other people, come, come, gather, this, this, here it is. And they start, they start amassing a, a large group of people never realizing that if they would see where the sign was pointing, then they would find breakfast. Can it be that simple? I think it can be. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he cautioned them in seeking after signs and gifts and encouraged them to seek after a more excellent way. I believe that it was already in transition at that point. You may disagree with me on that. But God's Word was already being established. And he gave signs, the power of signs. The Lord confirmed the Apostles' Word by working with them and confirming their Word with signs. But as their Word became in written form, and the Holy Spirit worked bringing to their mind things that they were to know, then it took away the need for more signs. Today the supernatural working of the Spirit gives us wisdom that is unattainable 
of our own selves. This wisdom comes from above. We read about it in James. It's first pure. The first one we get stuck on. We can't get around that one. Except for the provision of Christ. That's what's missing in so much of supposed Christianity today. It's just not first pure. Only after it's pure is it then gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Living this way is impossible, humanly speaking. But the greatest miracle in the world, the miracle that all other miracles point to, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do we realize the greatness of our salvation? The greatest miracle in the world is being forgiven by the King, declaring us to be righteous by faith so that the Spirit could be poured out on us so that we could be transformed and not be chained to sin. Now we're called ch children of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is the miracle of all miracles. And we see Scripture pointing to this. In fact, in 1 Peter, he talks about this salvation that the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. From what I see, they couldn't understand fully their own prophecies. That's how powerfully God worked through them to proclaim His message of hope. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify God's Spirit did dwell in prophets to proclaim His message. When it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory which should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, and then he said, which things the angels desire to look into. Interesting to see the wonder of our salvation in the prophets and in the angels. It's something they didn't fully understand. But in the end of Hebrews, we see that today we're living with that promise. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And this is something that we can and should expect when the Spirit is evident. When the Spirit is in our lives and is flowing through us, this will be what you'll see. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. The brother earlier mentioned about in Ephesians where it's compared be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I understand the similarities he drew there. I would like to draw a contrast, not disagreeing with what he said, but just a contrast that when you're drunk with wine, you lose control. And you see this practiced all the time in the prosperity gospel movement, being drunk in the Spirit, being slain in the Spirit, being overcome by the Spirit. And there's all sorts of things that happen. Anything basically is permissible. Never giving pause to the fact that evidence of the Spirit is temperance, which is self-control. And we see through the teachings of Paul that the Spirit of the prophets are always subject to the prophets. Never are you out of your own control when you're filled with the Spirit. A fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I just think that's interesting that those scriptures are often completely overlooked. Paul said this concerning the more excellent way. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. In 1 Corinthians 14, when talking about tongues, he said this, Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Why do we fall for something 
like this teaching so easily. Perhaps there are too many of us that are not truly filled and thereby easily fooled. The only way to recognize falsehood is by knowing truth. The best way to know truth is by reading God's Word and dwelling on it, giving the Spirit His sword. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed on Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's Word is the Spirit's sword. Let's not forget that. It's sharp and it's powerful enough, powerful enough to discern even the thoughts and intents of the heart. Today we try the spirits, and again, I've said this before, but we try the spirits by holding them up, them up to God's Word. But this challenge, how can we try the spirits if we don't know the Word? No one wants a false gospel. We all want to be a seeker of truth, don't we? I want to read this passage, and then this will be the end of the first session here. And then I'll have the moderator, I believe it's Richard, come up and give some announcements perhaps for the noon meal and so on, and then let him close. In John 14, 22 and 27, Judas, it says, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with Him. I want to repeat that verse. It's so precious to me. And it has been transformational in my life. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And that's the end of the first session. God bless you. Thank you for your time. Richard, you can go ahead and come up.